welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. afternoon Stacy welcome to the podcast how are you today I'm good thank you for inviting me of course it's my pleasure so I've been doing a little bit of research on you and you have a a fascinating story so I like to just start by asking you to tell me about yourself hmm well I am a full-time professional miniature origami artist (laughs) which Usually brings two responses. People either say what or huh. (laughs) But I am currently living out in the kind of in the woods in West Michigan and have a little tiny um, artist studio Mm -hmm. where I make my miniature origamis. Um, It's kind of been a long winding road to to get to this point, but, Mm -hmm. but I'm happy to be here and happy to be doing something I I really love and enjoy sharing with people. Well, that's wonderful. And that's uh, very interesting. I have, so I've spoken with another origami artist, but never a tiny origami artist. So I'm (laughs) particularly excited about that, but let's back up, backtrack a little bit. So Western Michigan, I grew up in Northern Indiana uh, in South Bend. So I'm very familiar with the lower western part of Michigan. Are you, I don't know if you want to say this on air, but um, I know you've mentioned like Grand Rapids, like Kalamazoo, oh, right. St. I, Joe. I live in Greenville, Okay. Um, which which I usually don't say Greenville just because people are like, South Carolina? I'm like, no, Michigan. <laughs> They're like, we have a Greenville, Michigan? I'm like, yeah. Um, so I'm just a little bit north and slightly east of Grand Rapids. Okay. Oh, great, great. Yeah, I spent a, spent a lot of time there. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So what? Wow. So let's so let's just go right into the origami part. So what was it in your life where you decided to get into origami, just in general? Well, I learned it as a very young child just because my grandparents all immigrated on both sides from mm-hmm. Japan to the United States. But it was, I believe my mom just got a real basic beginner book and stuck it on the bookshelf. So we learned some real basic things, um, my sisters and I. And then my grandma taught me how to fold a paper crane, the classic origami crane. I'm guessing when I was no more than seven years old because she passed away when I was 10. And, And I remember her teaching me this on the porch one summer before she had become sick. So I was very young and it was just something... I did kind of as a party trick most of my my life where you just, you know, make one or two here or there a year kind mm-hmm. of a thing. But in 1995, um, so when I was 30, I decided to try to make a set of thousand cranes small enough to fit as a mobile into a glass display case so mm-hmm. that it could be displayed all the time. If you use a standard six-inch square of paper and make a mobile, they usually come out about eight feet high and they're magical and beautiful. But then you're like, well, now what do we do with it? Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's eight feet high. 
And so I just decided I'm going to cut the paper smaller and see how small can I fold them and how small do they need to be to fit in this glass display case I was envisioning putting them in. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly realized I, I could fold them almost as small as I could cut the paper down. I made it down to three quarter inch squares and just assumed um, back in 95 that that's the smallest I'd be able to fold. I never even tried to fold them smaller until I guess it must have been 2015. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered I can fold half inch squares <laughs> into tiny cranes. And so once I did that in 95, I just kind of became a little obsessed with making the miniature cranes because I enjoyed the process so much and they were just so pretty. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I realized once I had made them was that when other people would see them and not that many people saw them, to be honest, for a couple of decades, um, it would just create this moment of wonder for them because they didn't realize either that they could be folded that small. And that's what really started to motivate me was just to create this moment where I could see by the expression on people's faces, the moment that they realize what they're looking at and their imagination just expanded. Like it just, it created another possibility in the world that they had never considered. And it's on this, you know, tiny scale of paper origami cranes, but I just, felt deep inside my heart that this is something that can resonate with them in other ways mm -hmm. that especially for adults to see something that surprises them mm -hmm. is always a good thing in my opinion when it's a positive thing because it creates an opportunity for them to realize there are more possibilities in the world than what they had come to assume um, about the world around them or hopefully even themselves that yeah that they're capable of, of more things maybe than they're giving themselves credit for. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so when you're when you're folding the tiny cranes, is that is do you just do that all by hand? Do you use um, like a uh, like a paper clip and a pair of tweezers or? <laughs> no, when I do the tiny cranes, I can fold them all the way down to that half inch square mm -hmm. piece of paper with just my fingers, and have often folded them. Um, kind of, you know, as a challenge on demand when people <laughs> will say, I can't believe that you actually fold that with just your fingers. Yeah. And so then sometimes I'll take out a half inch square of paper and I fold it for them. And it takes a while. It takes almost 10 minutes usually. And yeah. then I put it in their hand and they look at it and then they say, I, yeah, I just saw you do it, but I can't believe that you could do that with just your fingers. Right. So... Yeah, it's 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 I guess still kind of a party trick. It, it's still a fun thing to to pull out and and do when people are really curious. I use tweezers on several of the models though. If I get to less than a one inch square, mm -hmm. because the folds just become so tiny. Um, like if I do frogs, mm. uh, a one inch frog I can do with just my fingers. But once I even go down to seven eighths of an inch, mm -hmm. I'll start using real pointy, just drugstore tweezers. Okay. to set the folds and the legs and the feet. Sure. So I'm I am curious about your journey to this because um in between what you're doing now and then when you first learned how to do that you um you know got into web design, started a couple of companies. So could you talk a little bit about um your career in web design and starting uh the Flirty Bride and how that kind of 
has evolved with your journey to what you're doing now? Right. Well, most of what I've done in my life career-wise was never intentional. There were just things that happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm always telling people, I just went with the flow. You know, when the universe said, this is an opportunity, I'm like, okay, I'll try that. And then one led to the other. So in this instance, I was invited to create bridal veils for a fashion show at a fine apparel boutique where I lived in in California. Mm -hmm. I happened to walk into this really beautiful boutique in Los Gatos and my girlfriend worked there. So I was just walking in to say hi to her. And as I walked through the door, the owner, Jennifer, was talking to my friend Wendy and I heard the owner say, well, where can we get veils for the fashion show we're having and Wendy looked up and saw me coming through the doorway and she said oh this is my friend Stacy she's really crafty she can make some (laughs) and so the owner hired me on the spot to make her six bridal veils and I didn't know anything about it so I went to a bridal salon and I just looked at headpieces and veils and I'm like okay I can do this went to the craft store bought a rotary cutter and a rotary mat and um, made six veils for her and then the next thing you knew all these customers wanted to order custom-made veils, and it was a very small boutique, so she didn't have room mm-hmm. to carry an inventory there. And so she would just give them my phone number, and next thing I knew, I had all these brides calling me. And then that boutique opened a second location in San Francisco, and brides there started calling me. And I took my little you know, my little travel case of veils and headpieces, and I drove to San Francisco once, and I thought, this is not going to work. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be coming up here all the time to work with brides. Mm-hmm. So I converted the living room in the duplex that I rented um, and turned it into an actual boutique, like a showroom, mm-hmm. and just had all the brides all around Northern California start coming to my house. And... That went really well for a few years, and I was doing that full-time, which was also rather unique. You know, when people ask, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a couture bridal accessory designer. Um, (laughs) So that went really well until the dot-com collapse and the big recession in 2001. Right. And at that moment, the bottom dropped out of the luxury industry for many of us in in the luxury wedding industry specifically. And so it went from being really easy to to have enough work to support myself full time to very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of my wholesale accounts, my sales went down by 75% that year. Oh, wow. And so that was a big hit for me. But I thought, well, I need a website so that I can market more now mm-hmm. that I need to market more aggressively. And I couldn't afford to hire a web designer. And so I got a book about HTML. I'd actually thought about doing this and I had bought a couple books over the past couple of years before that. And every time I looked at the books, they made absolutely no sense to me. It was like trying to learn a foreign language. And then I got a third book and (laughs) sat down with that one day and just said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn how to make a website. And for some reason that is amazing to me to this day, that book clicked. And I was able to start designing. And I was using Dreamweaver. I wasn't just, you know, hand coding um, from scratch. But even then, it was like, this is amazing. So I I developed my first website homepage that first day. And I made a website for my business and sent the link out when it was done to, I can't remember, maybe a dozen or 20 of my friends and Mm -hmm. asked them, please critique this. Let me know what you think. And... 
from doing that, a few people messaged me back and said they wanted to hire me to redesign their websites. Wow. And so, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, in fact, if you go back to some of the first sites I made, every single file is in one folder because I didn't even understand how folders worked. <laughs> so <laughs> it was complete chaos, but I didn't know it at the time, and the websites worked, so people yeah. were happy. And so I started doing that. I just kept making websites, and it felt like every time I made a website for someone, they would launch it to their public, and then someone they knew would contact me and want a website. And so I shifted from doing the bridal things to just doing custom web design and development, mm -hmm. which I'm told was kind of unique that I did both because living in Silicon Valley, people were either designers or developers, right. but I was able to do both things. And so I was just making small, I called them portfolio websites for other mm -hmm. small business owners because I understood that. And probably wasn't capable of doing like a big e-commerce site or anything. I had no desire even to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. And from there, I started blogging when I had started my bridal business because I was thinking I could use a blog. A friend told me about blogging. I thought I could use this to market what I'm doing because I'm making all these custom things for people. Mm -hmm. And then once... I shut the bridal business down and just went into the web business. I kept blogging, but then I started just blogging about living in the Bay Area and sharing what it's like to go out and discover the Bay Area. And the next thing I knew, people were wanting to hire me to coach them about blogging and social media, how to use Facebook and and all of these kinds of things. And, and again, like, I don't really know if I know what I'm doing, but I know more than they know. And so I can be helpful to them. Right. And and the blog grew. The, the blog ended up gaining traction. And next thing you know, I had, um, you know, PR companies contacting me and inviting me to go eat all the food I want at this restaurant or <laughs> go to wine country <laughs> for three days and stay in a beautiful bed and breakfast, and things like that. So it's like, OK, this is great. Mm -hmm. Then I ended up moving to West Michigan at a point when my life was changing. I was going through a divorce and I realized I don't want to stay in the Bay Area. It was just so crowded at that point and ridiculously expensive. And we were probably four or five years into the drought at that point. And I just thought I, I can't be happy here anymore because in 2013, I had a tiny big surprise mm -hmm. um, custom travel trailer built oh. and I had never driven across the United States before and when I started traveling with my trailer I started realizing there's so much more <laughs> to this country than the west coast and more importantly even before I got the trailer driving out to Michigan to pick up the trailer mm -hmm. is when I realized about when I got to, I want to say Carson City, Nevada, <laughs> I just felt this huge relief. And I didn't even know why. I, I'm driving down the highway and I just started crying and I didn't even know why. And it, it happened like that, that later that year, I drove north to go up to Washington State. And when I got to about Mount Shasta, the same thing happened to me. And I realized it is so stressful living in Silicon Valley that I think it was just this huge relief of being 
away from everything, from everyone, like, you know, no, no one person in particular. It was just the overall bubble of stress of living there. Hmm. And every time I go back to California, it just felt like a shoe that didn't fit anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to move and I wasn't really sure where I'd go. I put it on Facebook to my friends that, you know, I'm going through this change. I'm not going to stay here, but I don't know where I'm going. And the next thing I knew, I had over a dozen offers from friends that I knew personally, from people who I've been friends with online for years, mm -hmm. saying, well, come here, bring your trailer. You can park on our acreage or come stay in our guest room and, you know, see if you'd want to live in Colorado or Georgia or Kansas or, you know, just uh, Texas and all these different places. So it was kind of like, oh, wow, the, the country is my oyster. Mm -hmm. um, but I was accepted to compete in this art competition, this public art competition that I had learned about in the fall of 2013. Mm -hmm. And I was out here in Michigan. And so I thought, I didn't think the universe wants me to go to Michigan <laughs> or else I wouldn't have been accepted to compete. Sure. And of course, the only person I knew in Michigan was my trailer builder. And he's like, well, you know, come on out. So I came and I, I finished putting my entry together and I um, took it to Grand Rapids and was just amazed. I, the venue that hosted me, the, that's a whole other story, but it was so serendipitous because they'd had origami cranes in their front window of their market before. And then they found out about me. So they invited me to be hosted there and um, they invited me back for the next four years after that. So I, I was at the Grand Central Market in Delhi for five years. Wow. And it was only because of that competition, honestly, that when I moved here, I was thinking, well, I'd like to pursue my art, but mm -hmm. I need to earn a living. So I'll do the web stuff, you know. And then I realized when I moved here, my Internet speed uh, doesn't support <laughs> web development. <laughs> Uh, my the highest speed we get out here is like 1.33 and it can be as low as like 0.4. Oh. So it's like, no, you know, this is the universe telling me I'm not going to be a web developer. Mm -hmm. But the art prize visitors, because I would go each day for 19 days and mm -hmm. usually about seven hours a day and sit there to answer questions about my entry. Because I took 4000 tiny cranes <laughs> the first year. I made four mobiles that represented the four seasons. And it was that reaction of people seeing them for the first time mm -hmm. and them being so excited about them and asking me, well, is there something we can buy? Like they wanted a piece of this to take with them. And I would just like wave them off and tell them I barely got the entry done. No, there's <laughs> there's no product line. And then the second year I go to the same venue, many of the same people come back and, and I have 4,000 new cranes and they're like, is there something we can buy this year? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm still just kind of getting my feet you know, on the ground here. Mm -hmm. But it was their interest and their enthusiasm and their encouragement that really made me think I could do this. I could, I can, at the worst, eke out a living doing this, envisioning that I would just make affordable products for people to give us everyday gift kind of items. Mm -hmm. But then hopefully sell the, the finished mobiles, which would be thousands of dollars because they take about three months to make one mobile start to finish. Mm -hmm. But I thought this, this could work. And so I came up 
with the name, the tiny gami name, which the word gami in, in Japanese, the word ori, O-R-I, means folded, and mm-hmm. gami means paper. So I named my business Tiny Paper, translated. Yeah. <laughs> and that was great because I made up a word. So I grabbed the URL. I got all the social media platform usernames. <laughs> <laughs> and everything fell into place. And I then very quickly realized that there's more to it than just making small products to sell because then I had a publisher contact me and ask if I would co-author a book for Mm -hmm. for pay. Um, And then I've had people hire me to come do public speaking. I've had people hire me to come be like corporate entertainment at cocktail parties where I sit with my little tray of paper and I Mm -hmm. fold tiny things and just give them away to guests (laughs) and and bring a couple of my mobiles to display. It's just the uniqueness of it and the fact that it's giving them a favor, a Mm -hmm. little party favor, makes it appealing on that level to people. So I realized as long as I'm willing to do anything miniature origami related that comes my way, then this is a viable business. Yeah. And it's what I say to people who are skeptics who will mostly online sometimes (laughs) kind of sneer that full time really. And, And I just go in all positive and just say, yeah, can you believe it? Uh, and, and I'll list those things out for them. If, if I do this, 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 and this, yes, it, it can be a full-time business. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's what I do. That's great. Is there, so the, I interviewed an, another origami artist, I think about a year ago. And Ross. Yes, Ross. Yeah, yeah, I follow him on on Instagram. Yeah. Which yes, so he wonderful. I you know I spent a lot of time asking him about how he suddenly got basically Instagram famous, and that's where he gets a lot of his commissions from. Is there a particular like outlet, um, social media, or otherwise where you get most of your commissions, or do they come more organically? Both. I would say both. Um, I w- I also started selling the the small product line pieces at a consignment store here mm-hmm. in Greenville and one in Grand Rapids. I have an Etsy shop and I had been on Instagram, active on Instagram since 2014 when I moved to Michigan, had kind of given up blogging and instead shifted over to Instagram. Okay. And what really launched things for me earlier this year was the company 60 second docs contacted me mm-hmm. last November and asked if they could do a feature about my work. And so they sent, and I, to be honest, I didn't realize what a huge opportunity that was. I had gone and looked at YouTube to see, you know, well, what kind of videos do they make? It's like, Oh, these are great videos. And the the videos got tens of thousands of hits. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, legitimate. Sure, yeah. I'll do this. <laughs> and then they launched my video and everything changed overnight because I didn't realize that the videos on YouTube that have, say, 30,000 views were getting 3 million views over on Facebook. 
And if it was 50,000 views on YouTube, it was 5 million views on Facebook. Yeah. And so my Etsy shop blew up. I had <laughs> set my promise, my turnaround time on orders for three days to five days, I think. Mm-hmm. And within the first two days, I got over 40 orders. Oh, wow. And before it occurred to me, I need to extend my promise to <laughs> out. And so February yeah. was really hectic. I, I, I was just doing production morning, noon, and night. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that that, of course, created a huge surge of interest online. But I was already getting interest from attending Art Prize every year, being in the same venue for five years. I think most artists even artists who participated for five years, they change venues all the time, but mm-hmm. I stayed at the same one so that everyone would know where to find me. So <laughs> for me, it's like a high school reunion. I, I yeah. know people now from the pretty much the moment I got here to Michigan because they come each year at art price to visit with me and see what I made, but catch up on, on a personal level too. And then when I put things on Instagram, people will see things there and they'll contact me. Mm-hmm. either through private message or they just come find me over on Etsy. But then I have people who send me messages by email and through Facebook. And and it gets a little confusing sometimes because there's so many requests coming in from so many different directions um, to keep track of them. So then I have to start a log. So, okay, well, this person's mm-hmm. inquiry was on this platform and that person's was over there and this person was from so-and-so and Uh, And then just even my friends will contact me for orders. Mm -hmm. Also, my friends in California, I've shipped orders out or in Washington where I was born and raised. I just shipped something up up there last week. So it's a lot of opportunities coming from many different directions, which, of course, as a solo entrepreneur, makes it very challenging because you're still doing everything yourself mm-hmm. from from that administrative standpoint and the shipping and the production and the marketing and the pop-up markets and the janitorial work and <laughs> all of those things. So I feel like I'm always busy. There's always something for me to, to be working on to help build my business. Mm-hmm. But I'm grateful for having had that experience of the bridal accessory business and the web design business because everything just keeps coming together more and more the further forward I've, I've moved. So, Yeah. What, so when you're working on a project, um, where do your ideas come from? And, and how do you know, like when you're doing your larger pieces, how you're going to arrange them and and how you're going to mix colors in to get a a certain feeling. I've always had this ability. I call it, I see pictures in my head Mm -hmm. and I'll think of perhaps a theme at art prize. The first few years, it was easy because I would take three to four mobiles and each mobile would represent a different Japanese tradition or custom. Okay. So I'd have something cultural to share with the visitors who would who would come and talk. And many times they've been to Japan and lived in Japan. I've never even visited Japan yet. And so then they're sharing the culture with me from having yeah. lived there. And and that made it really fun. But two years ago, I decided to make it more personal. I had 
wanted to do a piece that dealt with the Japanese-American internment Mm -hmm. for many years. I had this picture in my head of a set of thousand cranes folded of yellow paper because that's how the Japanese-Americans were viewed back during World War II. It was just the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. I wanted to incorporate miniature barbed wire. And years ago, I actually made a sample test strand of tiny barbed wire just to see if I could do it. And I could, and it makes you bleed just like regular sized barbed wire when you stab it into your fingers. Yeah. Wow. So I'd saved this tiny strand of barbed wire for years and I ended up doing it two years ago, the series of three sets. And I knew that was the one I wanted to do. But I also didn't want to present that piece in a negative light. Mm -hmm. And so then I had to come up with a story in my own mind of how do I do this? And the process I just used was wanting to bring it back to something positive and hopeful. So it went from the injustice of the internment to the process of healing and the second mobile represented this beautiful Japanese art form called Kintsugi where broken pottery is mended with gold. Mm-hmm. And, and I ran fracture lines through the actual strands of the mobile where all the, the cranes were folded from blue paper. And then these beautiful gold lines were cutting through at all different angles and places. And then the third one I called my filled with love set where they were a thousand tiny plastic cranes, each with a tiny paper heart tucked up inside its body. Mm-hmm. And so the story for me represented my family's internment, how they healed from it in a way that they didn't come out of that experience carrying any prejudices against the people who had been prejudiced towards them. Mm-hmm. And I am fortunate because I wasn't taught to be prejudiced of of anybody because of their choice, their decision to not perpetuate that kind of hatred or negativity or judgment. And having done that piece, it resonated so much more deeply with the same art prize visitors who'd seen, you know, they're like, well, the other ones are pretty, but this is, this is powerful. Yeah. And, and then this past year, I, I switched completely and went back to painting, which I hadn't done since um, the Loma Prieta earthquake. So I think that was 1989 was the last time I'd ever painted on canvas. And I decided I wanted to carry that Kintsugi theme through further. And I did a a painting of a heart with gold fracture lines running through the heart. But the gold fracture lines weren't painted. They were made of folded cranes with um, I use gold origami paper and then graduated those cranes from a one half inch square up to six inch squares and ran the fracture lines all throughout and across the heart. So now it's, it's a different process for me because now I'm expanding into mixed media. And I think for me, the, the first to really directly answer your question, I guess, is there's the message uh-huh. of what do, what do I want people to feel? And for me, it's become very clear that what I want people to feel is hopeful, um, that that there are still possibilities, but on a more personal level than what my first mobiles 
had, had conveyed to people. And it, it just feels that everything continues to, to fall into place. Um, this year I had a, right after the big whirlwind of the 62nd dot coming out, mm-hmm. I received a very shocking health diagnosis and thought about, well, do I, do I go public with that or do I keep it personal? Mm-hmm. And I very quickly realized uh, it's impossible for me to keep it personal. You know, I've been blogging for so long and I have so many friends everywhere. And once I started telling a few friends, I realized this is impossible. I can't keep updating each person individually. Right. And so I decided I'm just going to put on my blog, on my old blog. And so I, I put on there that I had found out kind of by accident that I, mm-hmm. I have these really rare brain tumors <laughs> And they're, they're I, don't, I kind of resist calling them tumors because that's not an absolute diagnosis because they can't test them. They're too deep inside the center of my head. Okay. And so there's MRIs that have been done. There are spectroscopy tests to look at the chemical composition of them. And pretty much you know, two neuro-oncologists, a neurosurgeon, two radiologists, everyone's saying, yeah, they're grade two. Um, bilateral deep thalamic mm-hmm. gliomas. And so for me, that was a shock and it brought everything to a grinding halt in, in May mm-hmm. of this year. But I was determined to still get my art prize entry done. I was determined to still try to get 12 of my mobiles exhibited all in one time at one place this year. And I was able to do that thanks to the Grand Rapids Asian Festival and having a uh, art exhibit in conjunction with the festival this past June. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I set myself back by choice a bit. I didn't close my Etsy shop, which my first gut reaction was just stop everything. But it's like, no, I've worked too hard <laughs> to to kill the momentum yeah. because I know how hard that would be to start over. And And now I'm just at this point of working really hard on my diet, on my lifestyle, to improve my odds of just being able to reverse these tumors myself because they're inoperable. There's nothing that they can do for them at this point except watch and wait and see if they become more serious mm-hmm. and spread or create symptoms. And so in the meantime, I'm just doing my thing. I, yeah. I, I went through this very dark period of, of fear and sadness for a few months. But by the time Art Prize came around, I was starting to feel better about mm-hmm. all of it. And now I, I really emotionally feel like I'm right back where I was before that diagnosis came through. So that's just good. moving forward, just focusing yeah. and moving forward. Yeah, that's great. So with after your diagnosis, did your did your art change in any way or was it that you were already on a similar or a certain path with your um, entries that you didn't change them? It changed. The the piece, the Kintsugi Heart that I did this year mm-hmm. was something I had intended to do next year. I was going mm-hmm. to go back and do more mobiles mm-hmm. this year and had already decided what they would be. I'd already folded a thousand butterflies. I was already folding a thousand tiny koi goldfish. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but with that diagnosis coupled with the knowledge that, oh, they're not going to have Art Prize next year. It had been an annual event for 10 years, but they've changed the format Mm -hmm. at the end of this year, and now it will be every other year. And my first thought when I heard that, because that was still kind of in the dark period, was, well, will I still be here in two years? I better do this now. So I set everything I had already folded aside and started a brand new entry just a couple months before our prize. Mm-hmm. But I was glad I did it. And it, it, it was uh, the idea I would say was, was one of those ideas in my head. I'd already wanted to do a Kintsugi heart painting for years. Mm-hmm. But the idea to incorporate it with the origami was because of bringing it to Art Prize. I knew if I showed up with just a painting, those people who had come, you know, the visitors, my friends now, who'd been coming for five years, they'd be like, how could you come here without bringing us tiny cranes to look at? (laughs) So then I had to think, well, how could I incorporate the cranes? And first I was thinking, well, I could still hang strands of cranes around a painting or put the cranes into the background and and at some point it just clicked in my head no yeah. i should make the broken lines out of cranes and yeah. and then it it wasn't intended it was one of those happy accidents i realized they represent the healing of a broken heart and the cranes particularly gold cranes represent peace and so i had inadvertently made a piece that represented inner peace hmm. inside your heart mm-hmm. And I did have one lady ask if it was for sale because I didn't offer it for sale. But I told her, no, this one is for me. Like this is, this is my, my inspiration and motivation to keep myself on track this year in particular. So I told her I'm open to commissions, but no, that one wasn't for sale. And and it's (laughs) sitting in my studio. I'm looking at it right now as I talk to you. Oh, that's great. So has your your routine or how you approach your days changed since your diagnosis? Not really, not at this point. I I just fold always. I'm constantly <laughs> folding something it seems like or cutting paper because people mm-hmm. will look at the mobiles and say that's amazing, that's so much work. And I point out to them it it's days just to cut a thousand tiny pieces of paper and that part's not fun because they think folding is tedious. It's like, no, the folding is fun. (laughs) Cutting the paper is tedious. Hanging a thousand tiny cranes is even more tedious than cutting Mm -hmm. the paper. But the, the process of folding is something that just had always felt good to me when I did it. And I would joke with people when I lived in California that I thought I must have some form of creative OCD because there's no other explanation for why I keep doing this. But at least it's it's beautiful and something I could market. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Art Prize and a couple different people that very first year commented to me about this has to be a form of working meditation. And when they said that, it clicked that, yes, mm-hmm. it's soothing, it's calming, it's repetitive, it lets me clear my mind and... That, yeah, that's it. And and that sounds much, much more elegant than creative OCD. So I've gone with that now, <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So if there are other aspiring origami artists listening to this, what advice would you give them about 
starting out or or best practices you've learned to monetize and kind of make additional revenue from your art? I would say a couple of the most important things are for most people, you if you've never run your own business, you need to understand how much work the entrepreneur part is above and beyond the artist part. So do what you love, make what you love, work your craft, work your art, whatever you're doing, but realize that to really turn it into a business is a lot more commitment. And I say this because there are people, of course, in the world who want to be artists, but their parents want them to go to college or (laughs) (laughs) do something that will be more productive. So I say to them, major in business, major in marketing. It's something you'll be able to turn around and use for yourself later. Mm -hmm. I started out as an advertising art major and dropped out three months before I was supposed to graduate because I just found the curriculum too stifling and thought I'd never want to do this for a living. And then I, so I quit college, much to everyone's horror, and I went into retail sales. And I'd never done that before, but I loved it and I was good at it. And so I learned retail. I learned customer service. I learned selling. I learned um, merchandising and cashiering and and inventory control, all those kinds of things. So that when I finally started my own companies, I had a working business background to fall back on to. So I think that would be my best advice. If you don't like speaking to people, then it's it's good to learn how to be comfortable <laughs> to speak publicly because mm-hmm. it's the only way you'll, you'll be able to market your business yourself most effectively. You can market without being a good public speaker, but if you become a good public speaker, you'll be much, much more effective. And I did that taking two very intense workshops, um, speaking workshops, public speaking workshops that were actually designed to help wedding DJs expand their skill set to be professional masters of ceremony because there's a big difference between a DJ who plays music and the master of ceremony who introduces, you know, the wedding party, the bride and groom keeps the timeline running smoothly with announcements, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And because I worked in the wedding industry, I was able to kind of drop into these workshops and and do these three day intensives. And they got me over my fear of, of public speaking. And I'm very, very grateful that, um, I was able to do that with, with it's Mark and Rebecca Farrell in their Marbecca method. So that, again, is another thing where it's just completely outside the box that yeah. not being a DJ, why would I go take and, and not wanting to be a master of ceremony? Why would I put myself through this kind of awful experience of you know being on a microphone in front of people I don't know? learning speaking skills, but I did it because it's necessary. And that's what I always do. I don't like to have my picture taken, but I've learned you get your picture taken. If somebody Mm -hmm. wants to take your picture to help promote your business, you do it. You go beyond your comfort zone because it, it all comes back at the end of the day. The only other piece of advice I would give people if they want to pursue miniature origami like me Mm -hmm. is you, you have to, be realistic and realize that, well, you might be a rock star and get lucky, like a lotto winner, 
and just everything falls into place immediately and you're making more money than you know what to do with. But if that's not going to happen for you, then you need to figure out how to do it in a way that makes it possible. And again, for me, if I had stayed in Silicon Valley, I wouldn't even have time to do this as a hobby because I'd be too busy working in order to, as I've said before, survive. Mm -hmm. Um, But by moving to West Michigan, where the cost of living is much more affordable, I've changed, you know, the, the, that whole foundation of, well, what are my financial needs to something that makes it plausible that, Yes, I I can earn enough. And I I don't spend a lot of money. Like I still drive my car. It's a 94. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't buy the newest iPhone every year. So I I think my monetary needs are fairly modest, but I buy a lot of paper, (laughs) which can actually become quite expensive. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing that I don't think everyone realizes. And even in California, which city you live in, which county you live in, the cost of like a building permit to build the studio that I was able to build out here in West Michigan. Uh, If I had built this exact same studio back in Santa Clara County, I I know someone who was looking at having an addition or or a structure built on their property there. Mm -hmm. Just the building permit would have cost around $20,000. Just the permit, not even the building. Wow. Out here in Eureka Township, I had to pay, I believe, $30 for a zoning permit. And that was it. And then we could build. (laughs) (laughs) So things like that are things to be aware of and be pragmatic about that that no, maybe you can't afford to do this in one location, but if you're willing to be flexible, you might be able to afford to do it in a different location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very smart idea. So in everything that you've done and experienced so far, what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? That's hard to say. I, I wouldn't really say I get a lot of advice because usually the things I'm doing are so crazy. Like I found a, a greeting card at a, at a store earlier this year mm-hmm. and I bought it and I framed it because it's a picture of a bird and it just says, that's a crazy idea. It doesn't make sense. You'll do it. Of course, I said. <laughs> so I don't get so much advice from people as much as, are you sure you should be doing that? Are you sure you should be moving there? Are you sure you can make enough money? I think the closest best advice I've ever received was from my friend Chris Morrissey back Mm -hmm. when I started my bridal business. And she commented to me one day that because I was doing these custom couture bridal accessories, it put me in a completely different little niche than most of the other wedding industry professionals where Mm -hmm. you're a You're a florist, you're a videographer, you're whatever, a a wedding coordinator. And all those professions had certain images and certain expectations of how you present yourself and how you present your business. But I was so off the wall, she commented to me one day that she felt I was really fortunate because I started my business and was able to just 
be myself. Like this was back before authenticity had become a thing, mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> like it is today. So yeah. This is back in probably '96, mm-hmm. and she said, "I can, I couldn't get away with that. I, I could, you know, you, you dress because I, I dress the way I like to dress, which isn't always terribly conventional either. Mm-hmm. Um, I." name my businesses. I was doing guerrilla marketing before the guerrilla marketing book first came out. And and she just pointed out to me how fortunate I was to be able to do that. And it's something that I, I honestly don't think I would have realized for years, if ever, that that mm-hmm. was the case. But that was very, very valuable insight she gave me because it helped to keep me very centered and very authentic and that I, I it's not that I'm this rebellious nonconformist, mm-hmm. but it, it gave me more confidence to just stay true to myself because there is no expectation <laughs> for a couture <laughs> accessory designer <laughs> Sure, uh, where it would have been easier because there were points like when I, I started the business as happily ever after. And when I changed the name to The Flirty Bride, there was pushback from some established professionals in the industry that they felt it wasn't an appropriate name Mm -hmm. for a bridal business Mm -hmm. um, because a bride shouldn't be flirting. But I just stuck to my guns. I kept the name and everybody loved it. The brides loved it. And that's what mattered most. And I, I was happy with it. So I followed that. That, um insight that mm-hmm. she shared with me and and I think it's it's been very good not just in my professional career either it, it gave me a lot more confidence overall you know personally and professionally to just be me just do do things that I want to do if they don't work out I'm only hurting myself that's how I've always looked at it <laughs> you know the risk I, yeah. I don't have kids I'm, I'm not responsible for the safety and security of little human beings that way. I've had a, usually a dog in the past, but they also just go with the flow. So, yeah. so the risks weren't huge, but I do understand that a lot of the risks that I've taken and a lot of the things that I've tried are considered unconventional, Okay. Um, but they paid off. I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy where I'm at. I'm doing something I love that I never truly believed I'd be able to do as a career full-time. It would always have been just in the back of my mind thinking, I I can make things, you know, when I'm not working, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I did for years in California. And then you just give them away as gifts to everybody. Mm-hmm. But but now everything is has come together. and And I feel like when I started doing Art Prize and started Tiny Gami, this is what it, I'm supposed to do. This is it. And then after the, the health diagnosis this year, a friend of mine, my friend Catherine, pointed out to me, I don't, I don't think your art is, is actually your true calling. I think your ability to communicate with people, what's going on with you right now, and, and being able to be positive and to be able to be proactive in dealing with this health crisis, um, I think that's your true calling is to help other people see 
that there are possibilities in that arena, mm-hmm. not specifically in the art world. And that made sense to me. And I actually, as soon as she said it, I agreed with her. But I also understand that my art is the medium to help mm-hmm. share that message now. Yeah. So, so I'm doing two things that are very meaningful to me. One that I had always hoped to do, one I never imagined I'd have to do. <laughs> but now that I'm doing it, it's, it's meaningful and, and, and it, it makes me feel good to yeah. um, try to present what is considered a very negative thing in a way that is hopeful and optimistic. Yeah. Well, it's, it's absolutely wonderful that you're able to do that. And um, and do a very very good job of it. It's it's uh, it definitely comes through your your speech and your work on how um, in much you love life. So thank you so much for for being able to do that. Thank you. So th- again, thank you, Stacy, for taking the time today to chat with me. I really appreciate your you taking the time. If the listeners would like to see some of your work or get a hold of you, where is the best place they can go to do that? It would be the, the tinygami.com website okay. or on Instagram as tinygami. Those are the, the two places. I have a Facebook page, but I, I've neglected it. I need to get more <laughs> into that <laughs> next year. Sure. <laughs> would be my New Year's resolution. Sure, sure. 2019, yeah. that makes sense. Great. And so yeah. I will put links into the show notes for both of those places, and the listeners can click right through them. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate this opportunity. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Art Podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.